Chapter 7 Cossack Echet Noir Durant was stripped to his sweat-soaked undershirt beside the fresh grave. Dirt fell, covering the dead blue eyes of the young man. He placed a last layer of earth onto the corpse, then set the spade aside. From his hand, the dog tag the young man had given him dangled on its leather cord. He pocketed it, then he drew his pistol. He unclipped the Webley from its lanyard and tossed the holster and belt onto his crumpled-up uniform blouse. He opened the cylinder, dropping the brass shells with their dull gray lead tips into his palm. He reloaded them methodically, closed the pistol, and cocked the hammer. It was a short journey to place the barrel to his head. His eyes closed, he forced a calming breath, resignation fashioned to resolve. And behind him there came a low, rumbling growl. Durant's eyes flashed open, instant recall of the wolf bitch from his vision. But this was no wolf. Six feet away, standing calmly in the wasteland, flicking his tail in annoyance, five hundred pounds of young male lion. Durant's pistol fell from his grasp. He stumbled backward. The lion padded after him. Durant's next step back led him over the edge. He tumbled over sandbags, crashing onto the duckboards in filth eight feet below. At the parapet, the massive head and tawny black mane of the lion appeared, a lolling tongue surrounded by sharp teeth. A roar exploded from its throat, deafening Durant. In the near distance, a voice, inflected with the whirring, rolling cadence of wheat and hard labor, vodka and Siberian snow. Soda, come boy! It's not polite to play with your food. The big cat licked its chops, then disappeared from view. Come, my chuck, come, said the voice. Durant pulled himself out of the muck and climbed out of the trench. An odd spectacle awaited him. The big cat nozzled itself against a man who looked to be in his forties, wearing the uniform of a Cossack major. Tall papaka hat. Knee-high black boots. Hanging off his left hip, a cavalry saber rested jauntily. Spokas Nodge. My cat has given you a fright, yes. He tossed a full canteen at Durant's feet, then knelt and picked up Durant's pistol. Don't worry, Fred. I am Gregory. Soda is just curious to find a living man among so many dead. Or perhaps you think you are already... One of the departed. I am. Grigori grinned. Ah, not yet. Not yet, I think. These dead, they are yours, and you believe you are the cause. I am. And you choose to speed your journey to the same distant shore these men rot upon. Durant had no response. It would be a stupid ending. For a poor story, Grigori stared out over the strewn dead men. These are dead for what? A flag, a fatherland, a motherland, a few meters of worthless dirt that some man determined belonged to him an age ago, and somehow it is now worth killing and dying for. So it has been, so it is, so it will be. 
but that does not make it right. The arrogance that any of this can belong to us, or that it is worth even a drop of blood, yours or theirs, pure folly. These lies we tell ourselves, these foolish choices we make, there's a reckoning to be had for all of them. The one truth is this. We are here for a breath, and then we are gone. That ending will come soon enough, without you speeding it along. He tossed the pistol at Durant's feet. But if you are done with all of this, then be done with it. And quickly now. Soda and I have miles to travel before the sun sets on this day. The choice is yours. Durant eyeballed the pistol. He bent and picked it up. The woodland four miles back from the front was untouched by shelling. But the cambered country lane that ran through it still told the story of the war. Rickety horse-drawn wagons, petrol-chugging sulfur-spewing lorries, the steady rhythmic tramp of a million boots from four different bone-weary armies, and the steel wheels of phallic artillery batteries dragged here and there, up and down this stretch of road, to rain fire on the fragile bodies of men dug down neck-deep in hell, had rutted it obscenely. It cut through the wasteland, a testament to mankind's brutality, ragged, beaten, and still. Then, on the breeze, beyond the bend, there was singing. Hate to see that evening sun going down. Hate to see that evening sun going down. Into view came a strange parade, led by a train of three men, despondent in their field-gray wool, disarmed in surrender. At the front of the German troop marched Captain Wolfgang Strothmann. Behind the Germans, serving as rear guard, was the scar-faced African-American, Corporal Taylor. His jazz tenor echoed across the land, a thing of divine beauty in a man-corrupted world. Hate to see that evening sun going down. Hate to see that evening sun going down. Cause my baby, she don't left this town. Beside him marched Francois Henrique. Over his shoulder was a sandbag, stained with dry blood, heavy with its load. The German prisoners marched along, spent and sullen. Just behind Strothman was Lieutenant Diestel, stewing with the rage that the shame stirred in him. Behind him the machine gunner, the young Jew with his iron cross, Jonah Unger. For Jonah, at least, his sullen attitude was more a function of exhaustion and hunger than a display of upset at the humiliation of capture. The company had been on half rations for a month now. The best cook they had known in three years of combat, the rotund and jocular Westfieldwebel Heinrich Wilkie, had been blown to bits and pieces, along with the vegetable soup and warm bread he had been hustling up to the line on foot, when an errant French artillery shell screamed down on top of him, ending what had been six months of miraculous cuisine. Tragically, the entire company had stood witness to it too. After a typical morning's back and forth of shelling had come to its clockwork conclusion, 
Bunga and all the rest of the men followed their usual routine of lining up at the rear of the trenches to watch breakfast being hauled out by Heinrich and his intrepid little staff of undercooks. Despite his girth, Heinrich insisted on accompanying his men to the trenches. It was at least in part driven by vanity. He could not resist the opportunity to see the men's adoring response to the culinary magic he concocted in the field kitchen under the horrifying conditions of the front. Somehow, he was always finding fresh venison or wild boar to add to the stew, or twist into mouth-watering schnitzels and bratwursts. His coffee was near good enough to die for, strong and dark, but never bitter, sweetened with brown sugar and rich cream. The men had no earthly idea how he procured the stuff, much less kept it fresh. It was stubbornly addictive, and the men had come to take its presence in their daily repast for granted. Heinrich was not one to disappoint. That fateful morning, he himself was lugging the large urn of coffee, a huge smile and prideful blush on his cheeks as the men applauded his coming arrival. His two young assistants, Peter and Paul, bustled behind him, pulling the cart bearing loaves of fresh bread and a tub of steaming soup to the front line. When the men awaiting breakfast heard the tardy French cell roar overhead, they added their screams of warning to its discordant wail. The shell landed with an almost gentle whoomph, and that whoomph took with it Heinrich and coffee, Peter and Paul, and bread and soup and pull-cart and all. They disappeared in a puff of smoke and left no trace that they had ever been beyond a small, blackened depression in the landscape and a deep, dark depression in the hearts and stomachs of the soon half-starving men they left behind. Since Heinrich's demise, a third of the dismal, disheartened field kitchen's stale bread, watery stew, and bitter, sawdust-infused coffee had failed to make it to the front. When it did, it was barely digestible. Yet now, despite the gnawing pit in his gut and his outwardly dour appearance, Jonah Unger's heart began to soar. It was over, by God, over. Ten fingers, ten toes, two eyes, one nose. He would not be a blind beggar on the streets of Munich, selling pencils, or a cripple on crutches, or a shell-shock victim. Body hole, mind violently disappeared. He felt buoyant, even if the French threw him in a cage for the remains of his life. He was free from the shelling, and the gas, and the death, and the muddy misery, and his spandau, and that was enough. And Corporal Taylor's voice was strong and beautiful and alive, his song mournful and stirring. For the first time, he recalled, since the war kicked off, Jonah Unger's soul was at peace. Lieutenant Diestel's gravel voice broke the spell. My God! This black must shut his mouth up. Unger shrugged. He liked Isaiah's voice, and the raw power of it stoked the joy that was building inside of him. I think he has a nice voice. Diestel shot a glance back at him. A nice voice. Jew, you and the rest of these filthy blacks will one day be extinguished from this earth, God willing. The raw anti-Semitism struck Jonah in the heart. 
He had endured Diesel's prejudice silently for three years. But the part of him that felt liberated from the war also felt liberated from the chain of command, and he almost made the mistake of speaking his mind, and might have, had Isaiah Taylor not caught the word Schwarzer. It struck his ears hard, and Isaiah picked up his pace, heading for the front of the little parade. Drothman heard Isaiah's double-time approach and saw it out of the corner of his eye. Shut your mouth, Lieutenant, before your head ends up in the Senegal sandbag too. Diestel blanched mildly at the memory of Major Smith's posthumous decapitation. Isaiah approached, grinning at Diestel. Hey there, Jerry. I don't speak much German, but I do know that one word. Schwarzer, you said. Been called that up New York City way a few times, and I picked up a fair idea what it means. Say it again, and you're going to make me see red. Libel slit your throat just for the joie de vie of it. Diestel looked at him, uncomprehending. Isaiah smiled. Sprechen Sie Schwarzer again, motherfucker. Isaiah ran his thumb across his throat, the message clear as a bell. Diestel blanched. He got it. Isaiah nodded back. Yeah, believe you heard me. Yo, English ain't so bad after all. He let them continue on and rejoin the line at Francois's side. These fucking Jerry's be wearing on my last nerve. What you say, deputy? Think you could fit three more heads in that there sandbag? I need no more heads for now, merci. What you gonna do with all them heads, deputy? Shrink them up? Make you some African head fricassee? Isaiah said with a grin. Francois's laugh was deep and rich. Mon petit, I am no barbare. These heads are for the English. The English? What the English gonna do with a bunch of moldy heads? Not my concern. My concern is the cans of jam they trade me. One thing English do well is jam. Hmm, you say so. Where'd old Renoir get himself off to? Think we should wait on him? No, he catches before we camp, I'm certain. And when he return, you know he is always bringing something worthwhile. Here's hoping. He started to sing again. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. It struck faster than the mind could comprehend. From the bowl of a birch tree, a flash of black fur, teeth and claws, shining yellow orbs for eyes, and Lieutenant Deister was hit squarely in the chest by a 200-pound black leopard, rending and biting as it took him down. Strothman and Unger were knocked flat by the momentum, and the little column collapsed in cries and disarray as the big cat tore flesh and sinew, ripping into the screaming Deistel. The leopard gave a final shake of Deistel's throat, then it turned towards Strothman and Unger. Bam! The leopard hit the ground. Bam! It lay still. Smoke wafted out of the breach of Francois's rifle. He shouldered the weapon. On the ground beside him, the bag of heads had fallen. Three of the four decapitations had tumbled out. Joseph Friedrich Schmidt's slack jaw first among them. Francois knelt and gathered them up. Isaiah stared in awe at the dead leopard. Holy Jesus, deputy. You bag yourself one big old alley cat. A horrific 
gurgling moan came out of Distel's throat. Isaiah and Francois moseyed over to Distel's twitching body. Unger and Strothman worked furiously trying to stop the bleeding. Another hellish moan emanated from Distel. God damn, Devity! How are he still drawing breath? Je sais pas. Well, this show gum things up. You want to finish him or should I? No. We take him to the aid station. I'll just as soon help him along. I sure as shit ain't carrying him. These are not the rules, America. He belong to us. We take him to English aid station. This is also where I receive my jam. Isaiah was not entirely convinced. He shrugged. All right, then. Whatever you say. Best be damn fine jam. Isaiah eyed the leopard again and then turned back to Francois. You don't think there's any more of those in these woods, do you? Mon Afrique, well, there's one. There's only one. Here, I am not certain. Isaiah looked down the road. Coming around the bend was a figure in horizon blue, rifle over his shoulder, a jug in his hand. Here comes Renoir, and he got a jug or something for his trouble. Renoir surveyed the scene calmly as he approached. He joined Francois and Isaiah and stared in awe at the leopard. I hear these shots. Christ, qu'est-ce que c'est? Where did this beast come from? Je ne sais pas. Francois shrugged. It's not the most insane thing I have seen in your country. No, certainement, certainement. Isaiah pointed to Distel. Sarge, what you want to do with bleeding Jerry here? Aid station. The prisoners will carry him. Have the middle of Panares. A stretcher, comprends? He turned to Strothman and Unger. Sie müssen ein paar Baron, verstehen? Und trage deinen Mann. Strothman nodded. Yeah. Isaiah pointed his shotgun at Unger and Strothman. Looks like y'all got some fatigue duty. Get some long branches, you hear? Come on, we ain't got all day. Shake a leg, motherfuckers.